Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Almost Famous, starring Billy Crudup, Francis McDormand, Kate Hudson, and Patrick Fugit. Written by Cameron Crowe and directed by Cameron Crowe. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue on our Backbeats cast, looking at films set within the world of music. So not musicals, but films with the music backbone, uh, so to speak. We did Star is Born last week. And up next, first time, or not, no, the second time talking about Cameron Crowe. We talked about his screenplay mm-hmm. on the Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That, that, that's going to come up again in some of the notes that I have. Sure. But uh, looking at his film here from, from 2000, Almost Famous. Uh, this was, as I mentioned last week, this is one of the films that I saw for the first time in, in your class. And it was always something that really stuck with me. You know, maybe those films I was seeing my senior year of high school were really latching on like those coming of age movies that, that felt were really poignant at that time. So uh, this has always been one that I come back to with the rock and soundtrack. Like a lot of these films have does a great job with the choice of music, not to mention the time his wife helping out with the score. We're going to get into all of that, but a biographical story in a lot of ways that's portrayed in a very interesting manner before our eyes on the silver screen. Excellent. New episode, new bottle. This is the High West Whiskey. This is the American Prairie Bourbon. I think we've had High West one other time. Yeah. That was their special Yippie Kaye uh, section that we did for uh, for Die, Die Hard. Hard. <laughs> Only Die Hard. Excellent. Well, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. You know, the last three, I think the last three bottles we've had have been really smooth. Mm-hmm. What you can expect with High West is little, little, a little punch. And I like it. Mm-hmm. We haven't missed on a bottle of High West, even going back years before the podcast. I believe you bought me a bottle of High West once upon a time. Oh, it, yeah. It has birthday. Right. Mm-hmm. It hasn't missed. That's a nice, nice distillery. Park City, Utah. How about that? Yeah. How about that? Excellent. Well, let's get this party started with our flight question. The poetry of promiscuous sex and drugs, right? Yeah, they're on pot. Or immigration. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, yeah, you hit us with the flight question this week. Flight question this week is, again, in the same space that it's been for the last uh, little bit here. We're still sticking with music, of course. But the discussion today is a little bit similar to ones last week, but not quite. And this is just your favorite performance as rocker in film. Doesn't have to be vocalist. Just who is a memorable, top three most memorable rockers in film um, fiction. Not docudramas, like fiction. Yeah. You want to go first? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll go first. Number three. Number three. Uh, so we, we, we didn't include him last week because we were kind of for, more focused on the vocals and that type of performance, but I'll totally give it to him here. I'll go Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury and Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, if we're talking about a performer performer, I mean, we talked about him nailing the mannerisms, the look, the vibe that is Freddie Mercury. So, uh, yeah, I think it was pretty, pretty uncanny, uh, what he pulled off there. 
Um, didn't make last week's because I was about vocals, um, and he that was kind of mixed in with the actual Freddie Mercury. So that'll be my number three. It's it's a real, it's a good performance. Yeah, great choice. Yep. Number three for me, another Cameron Crowe film. Mm-hmm. Matt Dillon as Cliff Poncier from Citizen Dick. Mm. Bit of a comedic take on the music industry, but they're huge in Belgium right now. <clears throat> That's in singles. I'm sure we'll cover it at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. I love that role. He's he's not super dominant in it. It's one of a supporting cast. Matt Dillon's an interesting actor to me. He made a movie that is borderline almost uncomfortable to watch recently. Maybe you heard of it. It's a Lars von Trier movie called The Houses That Jack Built, where he plays a serial killer, and it's just really intense movie. Mm. And it, it was a different role for him, so it was interesting to see him in that. But, yeah, he's he's always kind of cropped up in interesting roles throughout the years. Yeah, wild, wild things. <laughs> drugstore cowboy, wild things, mm-hmm. singles, something about Mary. Yeah, I was just going to say that one. Yep. Goes on and on. He's got a nice career quietly. Excellent. Number two. Number two for me, I'm going to go the route of rock mockumentary. I got to go Christopher Guest from This Is Final Tap. I mean, for these guys to essentially improvise their entire movie, write songs that are just as catchy as stuff that real bands put out, whether it's Sex Farm or Big Bottom or Stonehenge. Playing the instruments and then just the persona, like I was when I was watching this this movie when we watched just now, you kind of see a lot of parallels that they kind of took from Spinal Tap, like that moment when they brought out the shirt, the Stillwater shirt, and it's out of focus. That's like the moment when they bring out the all black album, and it's like, how much more black can this be? And the answer is none, none more black. Yeah, <laughs> like it's the, they they kind of understood the world that they were in, and Christopher Guest is just a very talented man. Um, whether it's best in show or a mighty wind or waiting for Guffman. waiting for Guffman. Yeah, He's got such a legacy of that genre. So that's my number two. Good choice. Yeah. All right. Um, sticking with comedy movie that we brought up quite a bit. I'm actually going to go with Russell Brand as Aldous snow in Sarah Marshall. Not get him to the Greek. No. Yeah. I got to tell you though, we'll talk about that, what that movie almost was and how it didn't happen. But regardless <clears throat> in Sarah Marshall, he's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Um, what are you going to say? Like everyone's seen it inside of you. <laughs> oh my God. And he plays it to the hilt for a guy that I think is kind of a prick offset. Yeah. Um, he's really good in that. Film. Oh yes. Okay. No, oh, I, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Excellent. That's a great choice. Man, I was, I'm, I'm going to listen to your cassette tape and then I just kept living my life. What would you do if your mobile phone killed you? <laughs> so good. Metaphor for a crap movie. <laughs> that whole dinner, that dinner. Oh, scene that, is that's one of the best comedic scenes ever. Ever. Oh, that's good stuff. We'll we'll cover that one one of these days. I'd love to kind of do a cask on the Apatow brand of comedy. That'd be fun. Yeah, Matt, I'm going to cheat a little bit on number one uh, because when you text me, at least you said top rock performances in movies, and so yeah, I knew you assumed actors, Matt Dillon, yeah, yeah. Mark Wahlberg. But I was like, I gotta choose a real person Go for ahead. a performance because it is a it is a movie that, and I, I would like to kind of cover like like rock concerts as well. I gotta go David Byrne as himself in "Stop Making Sense" by Jonathan Demme. So, if you watch it, I mean, you you watch a man just literally transform before your eyes. Whether that's you know the big oversized suit that he wears, doing laps during life during wartime, and just the manic energy this guy has to put on an incredible concert, uh, it's it's truly remarkable. Like you literally, if you want to like do a workout, an aerobic workout, do the David Byrne from Stop Making Sense. You'll burn so many calories. But talented, talented musician. I gotta pick him. 
I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Great film. Yeah. Interesting band. Interesting man. That's a good choice. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do a guy from a band that I don't actually like. Matter of fact, I rather kind of hate, but okay. the performance is so good, and it's Gary Oldman as Sid Vicious. Mm. Sid and Nancy. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to that punk scene that just sort of fits to cinematic conflict, right? Obviously. Mm -hmm. He pulls it off really well, and this is Gary Oldman before we all knew Gary Oldman as Gary Oldman, like world meet Gary Oldman kind yeah. of stuff. It's a really good film. That's a really screwed up relationship set against a backdrop of an interesting tone in a punk scene. I, you know, Sid and Nancy, the Sex Pistols. Mm -hmm. That's all you got to say. I didn't love that movie the first time I saw it. It's actually uh, on the Criterion Collection. Mm -hmm. It's one of the very early entries there. So I checked it out and I didn't love it, but I, I went back to it and he's incredible. Like yeah. it's, we talked about transformative, but I call, I call Gary Oldman, his nickname for me is the chameleon because whether it's Axel in True Romance or Bram Stoker's Dracula or Leon the Professional or Fifth Element or Jim Gordon. Like, I mean, the guy just becomes so many different things. Yeah. yeah. Um, or Winston Churchill. I was going to say yeah. Churchill yeah. in that also. And you know what's, I think, interesting about that? play a lot of different roles, but he's never brought up as a great character actor. And in a strange way, I actually think that's an acknowledgement of how good he is. Mm -hmm. So there's this theory, let me lay this sports yeah. theory on you for him. Good. Right. The theory in sports is, you know, you've watched a well-officiated game when you didn't know the refs were involved. Yeah. Cause that means they haven't screwed it up or there's nothing controversial and sure. some pass interference that changed the game on some bullshit call that happens every, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Gary Oldman is for me, the acting version of that belief. Yeah. He's in it and you didn't remember he was in it because he was so good and he just fit into the natural backdrop of the film. That's good. That it just seemed organic mm -hmm. and completely natural. And Churchill's like, how do you go from Dracula yeah. to Churchill? I know. He's everything that Johnny Depp and Tim Burton are not. Oh yeah. Oh, oh. Amen to that. Yeah. It's Yeah, I was I was thinking of the other one too was um uh Commissioner Gordon. Well, well, Gordon, of course, Sirius Black. Uh, yeah. He's yeah. in that Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Like, yeah, you forget that he's in these things, and he just he just brings it. The movie could be terrible, and he's still like, really? Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, that's a wild movie. But no, great, great choice. As Yeah. He did a movie. I'm going to look it up here with Annabella Sharoa. Is it Romeo is Bleeding? We'll look that up when we okay. go to some sound here in a minute. That is one that I know you've never seen. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Okay. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, I'll check that one out. Right. Excellent. Love your choices. Get, uh, yeah, hit us hit us up with it, with your choices. Um, real quickly, before we before we move on, I did want to mention uh, uh, one. Uh, Brett, Brett had uh, texted me this week, and he's, he's like, I got to get my entry in for, for what you're going to say for the for the top performances. You know Brett's a baseball guy. So he I wanted to shout out um, uh, Madonna from League of Their Own as a ac actress turned uh, to part of performance. And so that's pretty good. I, I kind of thought of her for Breathless Mahoney from Dick Tracy. I really like that movie. I would not choose Madonna from... 
or a little stint from Die Another Day. <laughs> it's, it's so stupid. Um, but thank you, Brett. Thank you for, for chiming in there. Hit us up on any of the socials uh, or our email, ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Yeah, Romeo is Bleeding, 1993. Lena Olin, Gary Oldman, Annabella Sharoa, Juliette Lewis, Will Patton, Roy Scheider. Good cast. Check it out. Excellent. Good film. Well, let's go ahead and get this party started. Keep it going, and let's get on to our review breakdown of Almost Famous. You've been kissing. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. I can tell. You can't tell. Not only can I tell, I know who it is. It's Daryl. What you got under your coat? It's unfair that we can't listen to our music. It's because it is about drugs and promiscuous sex. Simon and Garfunkel is poetry. Yes, it's poetry. It is the poetry of drugs and promiscuous sex. Honey, they're on pot. First it was butter. Then it was sugar and white flour. Bacon, eggs, bologna, rock and roll, motorcycles. Then it was celebrating Christmas on a day in September when you knew it wouldn't be commercialized. What else are you gonna ban? Honey, you want to rebel against knowledge. I'm trying to give you the cliff notes on how to live life in this world. We're like nobody else I know. I am a college professor. Why can't I teach my own kids? Use me. Daryl says that you use knowledge to keep me down. He says I'm a yes person and you are trying to raise us in a no environment. Well, clearly, no is a word Daryl doesn't hear much. I can't live here! I hate you! Even William hates you! I don't hate her. <laughs> I don't hate her. <laughs> I like mom. Yeah. Uh, okay, Almost Famous starts out, as I joked with you, uh, some very Cameron Crowe-like credits, which is weird to sound. Like they, just, they, they fit a type of film that he would make just so well, the handwriting over the almost like VHS-like footage of, of this treasure trove that we're kind of going to kind of dive into. It fits him. I mean, it fits him. He's the, always this one that likes to tap into the aesthetic of generations, whether it's uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High or singles, even say anything for that matter, always trying to give you a snapshot into a particular piece in life. And a lot of the stuff he tends to write is almost autobiographical. You know what I mean? Like he's telling stories about himself growing up. This one specifically. As the names come out in this yellow legal tablet, and we're seeing that against the backdrop of all of these pieces of novelty from rock memorabilia, I think what you're getting is Cameron Crowe's admission without actually coming out and saying, hey, this is my story. The way that he grew up in the writing and entertainment world. So we're going to get to this, I'm sure. But before Fast Times... Mm -hmm. His first gig was writing at Rolling Stone yeah. at like the age of 15. Mm -hmm. That is unfathomable I know, to me. I can't imagine. Jesse, and you're I, 15 years old and you're on tour with the Almond Brothers? Yeah, yeah. Some of the bands that he kind of got to like hang out with and, you know, write about Almond Brothers, uh, the, Zeppelin, the Eagles, Zeppelin, Fleetwood Mac. Yep. Like, like, not just like some no nonsense, <laughs> but like big bands of the 1970s. Like, that, like, I can't imagine being at that age. You know, I'm just still trying to figure out, you know, like my body's changing. <laughs> like I'm right. trying to figure out high school to be on the road with legends. <laughs> Who have zero morality yeah. in a completely deprived state at a time when you're really vulnerable and wide-eyed and ingenue. 
How did – I'm not as familiar with the Cameron Crowe story. I don't know if you have the answer for me, but, like, how did he – how did he get into the the whole Rolling Stone gig? Like it was through Lester Bangs. Yeah. So Lester Bangs was in fact the editor of Cream, and they struck up a friendship in San Diego. Okay. Much the same way that you see it unfold in this film, played by C- Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right. Mm-hmm. And Lester Bangs is going to end up mentoring Cameron Crowe through the early part of his writing, and even into his days in Rolling Stone, and through some of the early stuff that he did in Cream, he got a little bit of um, oh legs and uh, momentum. And found his way to Ben Fong Torres and Jan Winter and started gigging for them. Wow. True, and that that part of that's true. That's crazy. At 15? I know, I can't imagine that. <laughs> so that's the thing that's interesting to me about Cameron Crowe. Mm-hmm. At 15, you've already locked down a gig at Rolling Stone. For most people, that would be their World Series championship. Yeah. He's just starting. Like it's actually going to get better and more profound going forward. And then he's going to screw it up entirely. Yeah. Was the Fast Times article, was that a Rolling Stone like assignment? Oh, I don't know if that was an assignment. That I'm not sure. Because you're talking about another thing. Like, go right. undercover at this high school and write about what you see. He turns it into this book that becomes the movie. Right. It might have been. Yeah. Um, you can find all his stuff archived. If you get online, all his stuff is archived and you can you can see the articles that he's You've read some of them? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was gonna post one on social this week. I have a if I can find the Fleetwood Mac one, I'm gonna put it up. Okay. Um and it's really well written. But I think you see where Cameron Crowe's talents really lie. Mm-hmm. He's a writer. Yeah. Cameron Crowe is a writer. And when he's allowed to write about what he knows, which is himself, yeah. And the world around rock. Mm-hmm. Like his good movies, even even Say Anything, which is a romance, the quintessential scene in that is the Peter Gabriel boombox scene. Mm-hmm. Right, John Cusack at Ioni Sky's window. Mm-hmm. Boombox it up with... Sky. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Remember her in Zodiac? I, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, that's funny. As long as he stays in that space. Yeah, you write what you know. Boy, and did he. That's what they kind of tell you sometimes is like, you know, give us an environment. We're going to talk about this next week. Uh, about, you know, when films really stand out and they present us with worlds and avenues that we don't get peeks into. Like, Matt and I aren't going to leave this podcast and then go get on the road with the rock band and get to, like, we're just not in that circle. Right. But, you know, film presents an avenue to give you a snapshot into a world that maybe you don't want to dabble into and for two hours you get to see what it's like. And that's what he's really good at. He's really good at presenting and then making the people feel real. Because they're based on real people. Like, if you break them down at the end of the day. I mean, even Penny Lane in this film is based on an actual roadie groupie of sort uh, that toured around with a lot of these bands. I mean, he's writing and basing characters based on people he he met uh, growing up writing these articles. So He called this a memoir to rock. And the way the movie starts out with the credits, which is where this whole thing started, this conversation just Mm -hmm. a minute ago, Mm -hmm. is him taking notes the way he used to when he was on the road with these people just acknowledging where he came from. And I think it's a kind of an interesting visual on screen too. You wouldn't think a pencil on yellow legal pad. I got a weird random question to ask you. It'd be interesting, but it is. Yeah, go ahead. Do you use a pencil still? Never. Yeah. I'm a pen guy. Me too. Oh, I can't. I I think honestly, the last time I used a pencil forced to was high school, was senior year. Like I, since then I'm a pen guy. (laughs) Like it's just smoother. I just like, so even watching the credits and, it's like almost like Quince Nails on the chalkboard when he's writing the the names. I'm like, kind of like that get, scratching, getting goosebumps a little bit. Like that noise is just. Ugh. What I always what always strikes me about that too is the scratching of the pencil kind of echoes 
the scratching of the records that mm-hmm. are going on. Good. The vinyl, the mm-hmm. crackling vinyl sound that's that we a, all know. That's a unique sound too. That's an interesting beginning. Yeah, I like it. And it, and it really sets, and you know, for a film that's going to have great music and be, as you said, a memoir to rock, we, the first song we hear is the Chipmunks Christmas song that is just terrible. In September. <laughs> okay, Dave. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's kind of playing us here. Yeah, in September, here in sunny San Diego, as we're introduced to our lead character, William, and his very intense mother, you know she's she's intense, but it's just kind of the way that she's raised her children. And as you get from the clip there, Zoe Deschanel's had it up to here with that. So uh, music's not allowed. We can't eat these foods. We can't celebrate these holidays because of just everything that they represent. Uh, so she she bails. She's like, I can't live like this, and I'm going to go be a stewardess, and I'm going to go travel the world, and this and that. Capely handled by Frances McDormand. Mm-hmm. That's the one of the I think under appreciated pieces of this film is how this cast was created at a time when you might argue the two biggest stars were Billy Crudup and Kate Hudson. Mm -hmm. Patrick Fugit is literally found from a drama class in Utah. An open casting call is how they found Patrick Fugit. And I've never seen him in another movie since other than I think he played one of the cop background cops in Gone Girl. Yeah. And I think if I'm not mistaken, he was in, uh, what was that terrible Young adult vampire carnival of vampires or whatever the hell that was. Oh, Cirque de Freak. Cirque de Freak. Oh goodness. He's he's like the toad guy in that or something, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Not a great career. But literally and that's not a joke. Pulled out Pulled of an open an casting class. call in some Park Utah City, high school. Park City, Utah. Might be. <laughs> how appropriate, huh? How weird. Yeah. And Zoe Deschanel, really young Zoe Deschanel. Mm-hmm. Jason Lee, I think, might have maybe done Chasing Amy and maybe, like, Mallrats. Yeah. Oh, for sure by then, yeah. But, you know, who cares? Mm-hmm. Anna, who cares about those movies? And it, well, <laughs> yeah, I know Anna Paquin. Yeah. Faruza Balk, I think, had come off the craft at that point. It's a really Anna, cool. Anna Paquin off of X-Men, yeah. Um, Noah Taylor. Yeah. Philip Seymour Jimmy Hoffman. Fallon, and he's still in his SNL days. Yeah. Yeah, so... But you look now. You mention all those names now. Like, well, no wonder that was pretty well acted, mm-hmm. except for Patrick Fugit. <laughs> yeah, he was. A, he's a little wooden. Yeah, he is a little wooden. But what? It's he's fifteen. Yeah, yeah, he's fifteen, and he's essentially he's playing a Cameron Crowe. I mean, you're telling me Cameron Crowe would be a great actor, or this is he's playing he's playing it real. Well, and it works, right? And it does work for me, at least. Yeah, because a fifteen year old kid on tour with this rock and roll debaucherous band <laughs> with all these groupies. Probably would be a little bit awkward. The part I had forgotten all about was when they're, you know, they're driving in the car and she's like, you got to tell him. And he's like, the mother's like jumped him up a grade. And he's like, he's younger. So as the kids in middle high school are growing mustache, half stashes, you know, that kind of half mustache, (laughs) they can't fully grow yet, but he's just like this little tiny guy and they make fun of him. He's already an outcast. And so when sister leaves him, I think she does him a great service actually is, Hey, I left a present for you. And it's all these records. And as she's leafing through them, we got Zeppelin II in there. And, you know, we just got, like, some really good stuff. You know, Bob Dylan. Uh, Lady Blonde. Le- Blonde. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some good Joni Mitchell. The, like some Tommy. Re- mm-hmm. Yep, Tommy. And, <laughs> yeah, play Tommy and light a candle. You'll see your, your whole future. But the music opens him up into this whole new world that he becomes very familiar with. I mean, these become his 
friends that he obviously doesn't have. I mean, this kid's kind of an outcast or a wallflower, so to speak. Now, that part of Cameron Crowe's story, I'm not sure, is 100%. Mm-hmm. You've got to give this kid an entry into the world of rock, and essentially he uses what his sister uses it for in its escape, but I guess he's smart enough to turn that into something that's monetizable, or he's dogged enough to pursue it in a way that it becomes a career. Lo and behold, we meet Lester Banks. I, I mean, I'm telling you, you're coming along at a very dangerous time for rock and roll. I mean, the war is over. They won. of what passes for rock and roll these days, silence is more compelling. That's why I think you should just turn around, go back, you know, and be a lawyer or something. I can tell from your face that you won't. I can give you 35 bucks. Give me a thousand words on Black Sabbath. An assignment? Yeah. Yeah. You have to make your reputation on being honest and uh, you know, unmerciful. Which is how he's going to have to do it at the end of the film. I mean, at the beginning, he's just kind of along for the ride. But ah, God bless Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, yeah, anytime. What a talent. And then would come around and just do a goofy movie. <laughs> Go on, game. Rain dance. <laughs> <laughs> so so interesting to me but playing the real lester bangs uh, you said he died at the age of 83 1982 accidental overdose of dies of famine nyquil jesus um but here he is this kind of almost if you want to even go this route matt this film is like star wars so to speak in that it follows kind of campbell's hero's journey i mean here's his wise sage but his wise sage could be like the worst sage imaginable I mean, he's doing just as many drugs as the guys in the band, uh, working for a little kind of low, lower tier rock paper cream. But um, he's someone that's willing to take a chance on 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 one little Cameron Crowe, little William in this film. That's funny that you said that because you know what happened when we were watching this today? Yeah, is the scene outside the uh, entry into the auditorium in San Diego where he can't get in and that door guard has him barricaded. Mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself, this is the clearest example of the inciting incident that I've never come to. Yeah. If the inciting incident in that hero's quest by Joseph Campbell is the moment you step over the threshold and the journey begins, Mm -hmm. my gosh, he literally steps through the threshold, doesn't he? Yeah. All like he's supposed to get there and take this gig for cream to cover Black Sabbath. Sabbath, Sorry. Mm -hmm. He can't get in. And then about that time, Stillwater shows up late, which says a lot about Stillwater too, is the opening act. You're an hour and a half late. Yeah. Yeah. So they're pretty bad at this whole rock thing so far. He's already met the groupies and he gets brought in to that circle because of his brilliance in the moment, right? He says the guitar is incendiary, yeah. Russell Hammond. And yeah. then Jeff Beebe says, I'm incendiary too. Well, he, and he, he knows them so well. I mean, he was here. He's just so knowledgeable about the rock world that yeah. he was here to cover a big band like Black Sabbath at the time. And then here comes low level Stillwater and we'll get into kind of like how they're viewed in, in, in the film, but rattles off all their names, this and that. This is this would be like in the movie world. Jesse, you had to go write this assignment about Steven Spielberg. Oh, man, I love all his movies. But then, oh, you can't get in to see Spielberg. But here's David Lynch, and like, oh, yeah, I know him just as well, too. Like, Interesting. Like, you can, like, if you know the world, you you know the players. And if 
there's so much talk about fans in this movie. Penny Lane being a fan and him being a fan. I mean, they know it so well, and that's who they're really playing for here at the end of the day. That's great, yeah. And per the beats and the backbeat cast, mm-hmm. there's an element of fate for our protagonist that drags them into the quest whether they want to go or not. And frankly, Stillwater showing up fatitiously, that's not a word, but it is now. There you go. Is drug into the auditorium, literally drug, like Russell Hammond drags him in mm-hmm. the way you're drug into the quest and away we go. Yeah. It's so smart. Yeah. And then so it's interesting that you brought that up because I hadn't noticed that. And then Joseph, they keep pretty clear today, huh? Very clear today. Because this is a coming of age type of story. I mean, you're going to grow up throughout the journey. You might be a little young before you go, but you're going to come out. You're going to be essentially a man at the end of this thing, what you go through. And yeah, you kind of see that just kind of from the onset. But then we got to introduce one more little element here. And that is that of Penny Lane. We are not groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are Band-Aids. She used to run a school for Band-Aids. We don't have intercourse with these guys. We support the music. We inspire the music. We're here because of the music. Mark Boland broke her heart, man. It's famous. I'm going to talk about him later. It's a long <laughs> story. I'm retired now. Visiting friends. You know, she was the one who changed everything. She was the one who said, no more sex. No more exploiting our bodies and our hearts. Right, right. Just blowjobs and that's it. <laughs> Just blow. He's no big deal. <laughs> that sound in that mm-hmm. is different than the film. Yeah, that Mike Mullen, whoever that guy broke. Mark, Mark Bolin, yeah, Mark Bolin of T Rex. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's different sound. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I wish they'd sort of left that in there. Yeah, that's part of the the bootleg cut, which we couldn't watch today because of some technical difficulties. But whatever, we still saw the movie. How about that? But no, I like I I like this. And Penny Lane is interesting because just kind of i'm in this hero's quest space now like she's like the companion to him and the way i kind of see it she's just as much involved with the bands these groupies band whatever she wants to call it but at the end of the day she's still kind of looking out for him throughout this whole journey she doesn't want to get him to get in too deep and and she's always looking after him like there's that scene where they're in the going the uh walk in the hallway in the hotel room and it's just debauchery room after debauch or making music or whatever and like he gets kind of caught up in it but she's always there to kind of pull him back, pull him back into it. Maybe because she doesn't want him to kind of go down the path that she went or just kind of get like, you still got to keep a good head on your shoulders here. And everyone kind of realizes that they're always like, Oh, he's a good kid. Cause mom keeps calling. <laughs> We're getting some story allegory here. And I think the archetypes you bring up are really appropriate. The mm-hmm. question I guess we have to ask for Penny Lane is as she's the sidekick to the protagonist, is she going to go the way of like Kenobi as the sage would then be the sacrificial scapegoat. And we'll get to that later, but I think I'm going to argue right now, yes, that that's what she ends up being now. It's not quite that dire, but it's close. And the sacrifices that she makes along the way are what are necessary to let the hero finish growing up. Here's the thing about all of these coming-of-age movies. Mm -hmm. I like them, but I particularly like them when they are under the tutelage of someone who is poorly equipped to give them any necessary guidance. Mm, that's good. A band, a groupie, mm-hmm. a guy that wants to win a spelling bee to stick it to his dad, a bank robber on the run, mm-hmm. 
I've always loved that story. You know, I love that story. Yeah. The inappropriate, it tends to play better paternally than maternally. Usually maternally, it turns into horror, but if it's paternally, it becomes a bit more of a drama. So do you like that a little bit better than the kid from the wrong side of the tracks that finds the guy that turns around? I'm talking like the karate kid, your Miyagi coming of age story. Oh, uh, no, that works too, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's, I love that film. So maybe that example doesn't fit the whole idea for, I hadn't actually thought about that till you said it, but no, I think I like that one too. I just find the inappropriate, yeah. morally corrupted guiding father figure taking on young ingenue is just rife well, with growth bad. for both characters. Well, you, and yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was like, cause what ends up happening too is they both grow up. Yeah. Yeah. Through each other's, you know, discoveries, so to speak. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah, your role model's this debaucherous band, and we're talking about a debauchery. I'm sure it's it's still at that state now, and it's a little more glammy and glitzy, and now whatever the state of rock music is in now, but back then, oh my God. Like, yeah. We're talking about the most insane things you could ever hear about happening. Orgies galore, and just like in stuff like crazy, you know, just drug stories. I mean, there's there's a reason a lot of these people didn't make it past the age of twenty seven. Darn right, because it was live fast, die hard. Right, <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> right. And I think if you think about it, that sure, that still goes on today. Yeah, but it went on then with like a heavy influence of black tar heroin, and it goes on today <clears throat> with a heavy influence of designer drugs. Yeah, it's different. Prettier, yeah. It's more urban, mm-hmm. and the band and that era. We talked about this too. Like, I love the look of that early seventies. I love that look, mm-hmm. the urban look, not the leisure suit, um, American hustle bullshit. Yeah. Like the leisure suit kind of doesn't work for me. But the bell bottoms, the plaids, boots. the denim, 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 denim boots, paisley. Like I love long hair. I love that look, mm-hmm. and they slay it. Yeah, every t-shirt is not just a t-shirt; it's a ringer, and the look of that fits the urban effects of the drug world that I think you're playing in. Mm-hmm. Those guys aren't going to do Coke. Yeah. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Black tar. Yeah. Knock you on your ass and live to fight another day. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe big, maybe that's who's going to raise up our little sweet William Miller. Who's 15 years old. And maybe he's in, maybe he's 15. He just finished puberty on Tuesday. So are you sure we want to let him grow he up did, with this and, band? And he's about ready to graduate. So what ends up kind of happening here is he kind of gets, Involved with with Rolling Stone, and they're like, "Well, Stillwater, and like, you want to write a, a thing about that? That sounds pretty good. So here's what we'll do: we'll pay for room and board, we'll pay for this, we'll give you a thousand dollars, which is the most money he's ever seen in his entire life, to go essentially have fun with the people you idolize and listen to on the turntable over there. I mean, how do you say no to that? Does that blow your mind? It does. That that's someone's job. Mm-hmm. Me too. Totally crazy. Rolling Stone or whoever it might be. It doesn't have to be a magazine, but an entity that says, all right, we're going to negotiate with you over what the pay will be for this thing that most people would kill mm-hmm. to do for free. Yeah. We don't want you to pay for a single thing. Make sure the magazine pays for that. Yeah. But we want you to go out on tour with these guys for a couple weeks and give us a good story. Mm-hmm. And as fantastic being not grounded in reality as that might seem, it happened Cameron Crowe, Jesse. You got to live this life. Yeah. Led such a blessed life. And we haven't even got to the other part of that. Cameron Crowe's going to lock down his version of Penny Lane in real life. Her name's Nancy Wilson. Have you ever heard of her? Yeah. Well, she did the she did some of the songs for this movie. We're talking the hottest female guitarist in rock ever. 
go back and look at any of those dream, like sweet dreams all, or what, um, these dreams, all that heart stuff from the eight, just look at her. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous woman, super talented. And in the process of working at Rolling Stone and starting this, he meets her mm-hmm. on the Dreamboat Annie tour. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy on you in real life. And he logs down Nancy Wilson. I know. For a little while. Yeah. Like everything else, then he's going to blow it up. But I don't know what happened to him, but I'm really angry at Cameron Crowe. <laughs> for messing all that up. For screwing this up, man. Yeah. God blessed him in such a way that I am so wildly jealous of. Well, we talked about the films that came out after this. I mean, Vanilla Sky, pretty good. Four of a good five-run period. But then you throw in Elizabethtown, uh, Aloha, We Bought a Zoo. And then after that, you know what he does? He goes to rock documentaries. He did a Pearl Gem one. He did a band one. But those aren't movies. I mean, those are movies. Yeah. He's not creating new content anymore. I know. Well, maybe he's told his whole life already. You know what I mean? <laughs> there was one misstep in here. We talked about it off mic, but I think it's worth bringing up now too. Okay, so this five film run that we talk about is, help me out here. It's, Fast Times? Uh, okay, so six then. Fast Times, Say Anything, Singles. Jerry. Jerry Maguire, Almost Famous, Vanilla Sky. Yeah. It's a pretty good run. Yeah. That's a pretty good run of six. Yeah, I'd like to have that in my filmography. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. There's not a bad film in there. Can I guess the one you're going to say? Go ahead. Say anything? No, no, no. What? what? I, no. <laughs> yeah, the, I don't. I don't particularly love that yeah. movie, but that's not a bad film. Yeah. Aloha, Elizabeth Allen, All that crap happens, and he kind of gets it fired up again with the show that was called Roadies. Oh yeah, yeah. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. It made it one season, and it's this. It's a drama, dramedy, I guess, about a road crew for a band that essentially is the band, the band. It made it a season, and it's a nice cast. It's uh, one of the Wilson brothers, Owen or Luke. I can't remember which one. Carla Gugino. Mm. It's a nice, nice 12-episode series that never found an audience. But I'm telling you all people, if you can find it, it's worth a watch. It's really good. And what they do in that is the same thing that Cameron Crowe does from singles to this film. And he weaves in in the story of that show rock performances. Lindsey Buckingham is in there. Um, like there's seven or eight other, like off the top of my head, I can't remember, but they show up in the process of telling the story as, yeah, we're going to help Lindsey Buckingham on this gig tonight. Or um, I think Bishop's in there as one. Um, there's a bunch of really different and unique artists. What's her name? Um, oh God. I want to say. Halsey, yeah, that's her name. Halsey's mm-hmm. in there. Um, I, just, I just looked it up. It is currently not streaming on anything. Anything? Nothing, yeah. That's a bummer. Interesting. I haven't seen it. I'll have to track it down somehow. But the point in all that was something happened somewhere along the lines. Him and Nancy broke up, and then everything kind of went to hell about that time for him. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. It sucks. And, and you lose it creatively. And if you have that, that 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 spark there that's, you know, providing that for you, I mean, you, it does suffer. You do suffer from that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the other musical influence on this film here. So they this is a, a fictitious band, Stillwater, yeah. influenced by sorts of, it's a very much uh, Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead, uh, Zeppelin type of scenario. Leonard Skinner is the one I see a lot. The plane scene at the, coming up here oh, for for, sure. towards the end. Um but a lot of these guys were, you know, kind of consulted with with Peter Frampton, um, and he helped write some of the songs with with Nancy Wilson, uh, Fever Dog being one of them. Oh, 
pretty good. <laughs> when Frampton hits it and ends up on Rolling Stone with the Frampton Comes Alive bit, you know who wrote the piece? Cameron Crowe. Crow. Oh, wow. That was him. Mm. So all of these go back to his days in Rolling Stone and the love letter that he continues to write to the people that made him. Everyone and their mom had that album. <laughs> Everyone and their mom had that album. They bring Peter Frampton on set mm-hmm. to be the rock coach. Yeah. Billy Crudup, Jason Lee, and then the drummer and the guitarist are actually um, professional musicians anyway, so I, not those two. But they went through like a six-month training process to learn how to be musicians. Billy Crudup is playing the guitar. Jason Lee is learning how to really sing. And on the rap party for this, when it's finished, Stillwater put on a concert. That's you can awesome. believe that. That's really cool. I mean, can you think of a better rock teacher mm-hmm. than Peter Frampton? Yeah. Who's your guitar teacher? Oh, this dude down the street. Oh, yeah, mine's Peter Frampton. <laughs> Winning. Yes, exactly. That's awesome. It's- and then they, they, they let Peter Frampton... Have a small role in the film. Mm-hmm. I think he's the road manager for Humble Pie of all bands, but Humble Pie. Oh, is that him? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Humble Pie. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it just it lends a little bit more authenticity to a lot of these scenes. Sees the band, uh, the band sequences. I mean, we get that other one later in Tempe, uh, where. Russell's electrocuted on stage from, you know, grabbing the microphone. I mean, it becomes this whole thing. And then the, the, st- the venue, uh, a director is like literally chasing them out making sure that they pay every every cent for the what they've destroyed and like you almost killed the guitarist <laughs> i think there's an important part that fleshes out the family piece in this film francis mcdormand as his mom could come across as being really tyrannical and, and bitchy and, and kind of hateable mm-hmm. so when 15 year old william miller gets the opportunity to go on tour for a grand to cover Stillwater by Rolling Stone, he still has to get the green light from mom. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but my mom would, there's no way in the hell she would say yes to that. Yeah. That's, there's, I wouldn't even ask the question. It's, I'm probably going to have to run away to get that gig. Yeah. He sits down and for all of the non-commercial, non-sellout, I want him to go into law. Why is it bad to be called a narc bit that mom is? She has the insight to let her kid be a dreamer. Mm-hmm. And somehow she greenlights his going on tour yeah. with Stillwater. As long as he calls her every couple of days, I guess. <laughs> like twice a and, day. And doesn't do drugs. Mm-hmm. I think this is an important moment because what you're doing is you're taking kind of an irredeemable character through Anita's eyes, that's Zoe Deschanel, mm-hmm. and making her a little bit like her, a little bit more, not like her, likable through William's eyes. And that's important because she's going to be really important, not only to him, but also the band, because she's the grounding influence when he's out there lost in the world of debauchery. Yeah, Home. She represents home, a place to get back to, which is where you go when the tour is over. Yeah. Cameron Crowe's mom was on set for this film. He brought her on set just to sort of be there and experience it with him because she lived through it as almost a supervising voice. Yeah, that's awesome. It's that the whole movie's like that. So when when William's out on tour, and we begin the process, the first couple of days are like, oh, you know, yucks and fun. And then by about day three, his eyes start to get open, don't they? Mm-hmm. And it happens in the scene you just spoke about. They have a great tour. It's a few beers and a, like a bottle or two backstage, and then Russell gets shocked. Yeah, and he recognizes when the crisis arises, he's with a motley crew, indeed. Yeah. 
No, and it's and it's I, I find it interesting uh, being that okay, his he's tasked with having to write this article, cover this band, kind of get an insight onto this. And the, the, the pitch on the band is kind of this fledgling band, you know, hoping there's a reason that's it's also called almost famous. I mean, he's almost famous because he's trying to make it as this know nothing journalist, but the band is trying to make it too. Like this is like we're our almost famous tour. We're a uh, a hit away from hitting hitting the big time. They're playing smaller venues, smaller arenas. And I forgot that this becomes such a crux of the story, which is trying to nail down an interview with Russell. We'll do that later. We'll, we'll talk about that later. It's always later, later, later. And then, like, I need to, once I do that, I can get out of here. And as you said, once that happens and the wheels start falling off the bus, <laughs> Doris, uh, their tour bus, uh, it's just like, oh, man, am I ever going to get this article? And then as Rolling Stone starts calling and, you know, the stakes get a little bit greater, it's like, man, is he even going to be able to write this thing because the world, he's, these people are just so uncooperative with him at times as they're fighting and bickering about the T-shirt and and this. And, yeah, it's just, it's a... It's a lofty goal for him to try and pin Russell down. It's almost that William is the grounding element on tour because everyone else is so wildly Mm -hmm. um, dramatic. William doesn't want to go home because he wants to get the story. But I think if it wasn't for the story, by about the time they knock down the gate after Russell's been shocked in, is it Phoenix? Yeah. It's probably about done. That's a little, it's living a little too fast for sweet William who's trying to be dangerous and all that, but isn't any of those things. He is wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, yeah, he's ingenue, do, he's not doing sweet. He's not doing any drugs. <laughs> no. Yeah. And they're all around him. So he's in way over his head. But much like William has been throughout the whole film, he's going to stay the course. And this becomes the conflict because there isn't really an, there's not a, an active um, antagonist yeah. trying to undo him. It's situational antagonism. Mm-hmm. Like that, yeah, that's the situation. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to fix this? Oh my God, did this one really? Did this? And and so these incidental or anecdotal moments create a backdrop for him accomplishing or preventing him from accomplishing his larger goal, which is to get that damn interview. And you know the other thing too I love about it? He does get an interview before the one with Russell. He gets one from Jeff on the first night of the tour. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Beebe is a moron. Yeah. The buzz, the vibe, the chicks are great. And like whatever you get, that's the, that's the, th- he's just talking shit. Yeah. Non linear diarrhea of the mouth bullshit. Like it's profound though. I mean, delivering in a way that this is really important. And I have decoded rock and here it is. Rock 101 philosophy by Jeff Beebe. As we're watching him put shaving cream in his hair, which is so appropriate yeah, to that I time as well. Yeah, I what he was doing. Yeah, that's the nuts. Do you ever, can it, this is, has nothing to do with, with um, the film, but okay. can I tell you something disgusting? Yeah, go ahead. And in the early 2000s, the Dallas Mavericks were pretty loaded with um, Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki, mm-hmm. and they were both going through a long hair phase. Yeah. And it always looked greasy, and they admitted, this is disgusting, yeah. that they put conditioner in their hair before they went to go play. Oh, jeez. Steve Nash played basketball game after basketball game like a greasy little non-defending, <laughs> never-won-anything guy that he was. Isn't that gross? Still helped him play well, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Wow. Sweating straight condition. Ugh. And every the time. both of them? Yes. Oh, wow. And every time. The Dallas Maverick story is so good from Tony Braxton destroying them in the like mid 80s when they had a really good team because she dated 
um, Ashburn, Jackson, and, and um, whoever the hell the other one was at the same time. Like, they're just one saga after another. But I used to look at him thinking, like, man, he's really sweaty for the first quarter, and it came out. No, no, it's actually conditioner in my hair before I go play. Gross. Yeah. That's <laughs> pretty gross. That's as gross as watching Jeff G- Jeff Beebe put shaving cream in his hair. I guess it's a product if you want to. I don't know. I don't know. Tell us. Tell us what that means, everybody. I'm going to grow my hair really long so we can put some we'll shaving cream it. in we'll, it. We'll try it. We'll, we'll, we'll Instagram live that. Do you think that's weird? Is that, that is. Is that, that a thing? Well, it's weird because I've washed my conditioner out in the shower. <laughs> when you style your hair on Monday to work, yeah. I want you to use um, shaving cream. Okay. I, I, I have some, yeah. All right. Do you have the foamy kind that he uses? I do. All right. You guys heard it's happening. I have, I have two kinds. I have I have that one, and then I have a warming agent that just kind of gets the follicles to just kind of stand up. Oh. So get an insight into my shaving routine. We'll do a shot next week to talk about your uh, my morning hygiene practices. It's going to be like Patrick Bateman's. In the morning, and I put an, uh, a honey almond body scrub. <laughs> then I use an aftershave with little to no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> So all this is happening on the first night, right? He's the watching all of this on. Yes. Yeah. And the interview he wants is Russell. Mm-hmm. And Jeff won't shut up. Oh, yeah. I'd want to interview him versus Jeff. Yeah. I know. Yeah, that's the. I want to interview. I don't know. I'd, I'd want to interview Robert Plant. But like the Jimmy Page, you want to interview like the supreme talent of that band, which is him. So I don't know. It might be John Bonham as well. And so there's a lot of talent in that group. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he yeah he he's got to nail this down so we can finish his article. And then just things keep popping up left and right. And then after you know an, another failed thing, Russell just goes rogue one night. I am a golden god. Hey Russell, don't jump. And you can tell Rolling Stone magazine. And my last words were I'm on drugs. Russell, I think we should work on those last words. Okay. Oh, I got it. 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 This is better. Last words. I dig music. I'm on drugs! Look, just come on down and we'll go back to the hotel. Okay. Jump! Jump! Jesus Christ. So Russell did acid in the bathroom. He's up on he's up on the roof now, proclaiming he's a golden god. Uh, but I think totally I think Cameron Crow knows what type of movie he he wants to make. And even in the scene later with Penny Lane overdosing essentially, that the music, the backdrop always has a slight levity to it. Like we're not telling like a serious rock biopic in this film. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a lightness to it, even in something as serious as this where Russell could jump compound fracture both his legs in this swimming pool and he's just tweaking hard that we still remember you know we're we're still having fun with it and i don't know if that's a detriment to william the character being that you know these guys aren't paying for the consequences of their actions and they just continue on they just it's the next day it's the next day it's the next gig um but maybe that's just the world that he got to view in his time his upbringing in the movie lester bangs tells william that this is 
the story he's writing is a think piece about a mid-level band struggling, struggling with the harsh face of stardom. Decoded, that means they take themselves way too seriously. And that scene on the rooftop is exactly that. Russell gives this really profound, before he's going to jump into this pool, my final words in rock and roll are, I dig music. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, is so infinitesimally not deep. Like, it is so shallow. Yeah. Of course you do. Do you like breathing? Is that the second thing? (laughs) And I think the response that the crowd elicits or that that elicits from the crowd is about right. They're like, yeah, it's like about a golf clap maybe. And then they get back to what really incites them, which is I'm on drugs. And that's the whole landscape. You see, Stillwater isn't Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. They're not Zeppelin. They're humble pie. Yeah. They're just a band. They're just a rock band that's the flavor of the year, maybe a couple years if they're lucky, that's contemporary in the time. Because they're okay, but they're not great. And they are trying hard to be great with something that's not there. And maybe Russell is, maybe. That's kind of the argument that the movie makes, is Russell's way more talented than the rest of the band, and they're kind of holding him back. Maybe. Who knows? And who cares? Like every guitarist from every band that has ever been like featured, like hi Tom Morello, they're, I'm talking about you. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> no, but like you know what I'm saying? They're kind of like the traveling Wilburys. Well said. Yeah, I like that band. Like for a few years, I wouldn't say important. I would say relevant. Yeah, and that might be about the apex of the celebrity they're ever going to achieve. Mm-hmm. If you're on the rooftop and you. These are these profound moments. I'm stripped down. All my pretensions are broken away. And here it is, just me. And my life is, I dig music. Mm -hmm. You're just a musician. Yeah. And that's what William's also discovering now, too. Because, and then you you furthered my point even more. What matters in this film is all the human stuff that happens that's not not Mm rock-based. Overdoses. Loss of virginity. Mother, son, daughter, family dynamics, jealousy, money, all like none of that's rock. Now the rock's the vehicle to show it. And that's still water. And the band can't figure that out. And that's why I love the band. It's a band that's trying to be one of the five all timers and mm-hmm. they're nowhere close to even being top 50 of the decade. I know. Yeah. And that, that seems perfect. Shut up. We don't want to hear you preach. Just jump in the pool. Let's Just, party. Yeah, exactly. And then, so and then so William's like, oh, God, how am I going to get my interview? And then he's talking to the manager. I got to get my interview. And so they get back on the bus, and the bus is, like, defeated, dejected. They're like, God, how do we move on from this? And Russell's a mess, and Jesus Christ. And then you get this. One of my favorite scenes of all time. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's just like, how are we going to repair the damage that's been done? And of course, you're going to do it through music. And I don't think Tiny Dancer's ever been used as effectively as it is in that scene. Just like this come to Jesus moment for this band to let bygones be bygones and put it all behind us and let's put our best foot forward. But then, as you said, Francis McDormand represents home. I have to go back to that. I have to graduate. 
I got to get this article done. It's going to be in a state of uh, incomplete when I turn it in. And then Penny Lane's like, what are you talking about? This is home. Like, you found a new home. You found a new world. You can't go back to the old home. And I don't know if Cameron Crowe ever really did. I mean, he found different avenues. You know, he wrote for Rolling Stone for a while, got into film, and then, like, that became his world. So the sense of normal San Diego, that's in the past. Like, that's that's all gone. It's funny that they brought that. that that's I think that's really well said. Mm-hmm. It's not his home because he has a home. For Penny Lane and all of those involved, it is. That's what they have. That is their, Doris is their house. And as they travel across the country, they go through all of the sibling rivalry, which essentially is what we see happening in Stillwater, that you would have in a normal family. William has that at home, but he's coming from a much more stable background. He doesn't want to be part of that family. Like he might like to be adopted or stay the night. Stay the night. But he doesn't want to be part of the family. Mm Mm-hmm. Long term. It's fun to go and visit, but I want to go back home to my own bed. And that is literally how you know. He comes home, heals mom and Anita, not through music, but through the family dynamic as he pushes mom into Anita with her as a suitcase. I love that shot. He yeah. just kind of shoves Francis McDormand and Zoe Dash and yeah, like, go make up. That's good. And sees his bed. And above his bed is a big poster of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And he crashes and he's home. Yep. Like when this is all said and done. Mm-hmm. I think by the time William comes home, he's realized like when Jeff Beebe says rock and roll can save the world and he watches them not being able to navigate the smallest of crisis, like an out of focus t-shirt that literally destroys the band in five minutes. I know. Yes. (laughs) There's no chance that rock and roll saves the world ever. This really might be like the ultimate, just like storytelling mechanism. Cause okay. So this is the Campbell's hero's quest. This is a coming of age film and it's a fish out of water story. I mean, he knows the world, but he doesn't know the world until he's in it. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. <laughs> so, I know exactly what so you mean. So when she says you're home and he's kind of like, oh, I guess I'm kind of home, but really not. You know, there's a reason he pops into that bed and he feels comfort because this is a foreign world that he can never be a part of. He's not even a musician. He's just a writer. So let me lay something on you about Tiny Dancer. Yeah. Do you like that song? I, I do. As much as you like it in this film when you hear it without the film? Um... Yes, I do. Okay, I love that song too, but it never plays for me quite, because I don't have 15 people singing it with sure, me. Sure, yeah. What's really telling to me in this, <clears throat> what heals the band is the level of importance in the industry that Stillwater will never achieve. We're talking about Elton John. We're talking Hall of Fame, lockdown, like rock and roll royalty, fair? Mm-hmm. And that moment heals the band because their own... I don't want to say failures, but limits on what they can do haven't been recognized. They're trying to be more than they are. And I don't want them to not achieve some place of stardom. But the star of the story and the one who's going to really go places is William. Yeah. He doesn't need Elton John to heal him because he actually didn't screw it up. He actually doesn't give a shit about the t-shirt. He likes the t-shirt mm-hmm. and he appreciates what that is. This screwed up t-shirt that's about this band that I like. He snags the t-shirt. But the band, Jeff Beebe, and the t-shirt isn't a metaphor for everything that they want to say. It's just a fucking t-shirt, man. (laughs) But that's the whole thing. Like, that dynamic that this band is playing and the think piece about this middling band struggling with the harsh face of of stardom is so appropriate and played out so well. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'm wondering. I'm going to ask you this question. There's a long way to get to this. Okay. Of the bands that Cameron Crowe covered, who's this band? 
I mean, I knew you'd have to go back and look at all of the bands that he went with. It might be, maybe. Mm-hmm. It might be the Eagles because, you know, uh, they did a lot of this kind of bickering back and forth to the point where it just split them up entirely. Okay, Jesse, that's one of my votes as well. Yeah. I think it's maybe the Almonds. Mm, could be. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Because, man, there's going to be people throwing stuff at the their podcast listening device when I say this. <laughs> I think the Eagles are the rock version of Stillwater. I don't think that's rock royalty. I think they're a good band that was pop fun and friendly. I don't think they are. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, my, 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 which fine. That's I think they're a good band that has their place. Right. For sure. They're not Zeppelin. They're not the Stones. They're not Elton John. They're just a rock band. That sold a hell of a lot of records. Sure did. Yeah. But I know what you mean. Like, it's almost like they crumbled under the graces of their own successes. Yes. Like, they yes. became almost too big, which is kind of crazy. And if you don't think Jeff Beebe is Don Henley, then I don't know what. <laughs> that guy's ego wouldn't even fit in this room with you no, with you and it? I. That guy's a total prick. Yeah. Have you ever heard anything? That that guy. I know. Oh, holy me. I do I do like a good drummer who can sing at the same time, though. So. <laughs> I'll trade you Don Henley for Phil Collins then. Okay. Oh, gosh, I don't know. He's, he's kind of prickish, too. But the same thing, right? Genesis is kind of the same thing. This is so... This, we're talking about music. It's all interrelated. Did you know that Phil Collins and Stuart Copeland of the police have this, like, ongoing feud for, like, 30 years? Over what? I don't know. Just, like, nonsense. Like, over drumming techniques and, and whatnot. It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious, really. Is it? Yeah. Anyway. That might have to be a shot. Great feuds in rock and roll. Well, I showed you that podcast. Not to, we'll plug a podcast right now, but there's a great uh, podcast called Rivals. And yeah. each week they cover a different rock royalty, whether it's Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham or Michael Jackson and Prince or like just rivalries you didn't even know about kind of a thing. So good stuff. That's a good listen. Hmm. I'll check that one out. Yeah, check that one out. So it, everything's in a state of disarray, but they're repaired through the graces of music. They get Jimmy Fallon as their new kind of manager who wants to get a plane. We got to take this. We got to make money because you guys are in the red right now. You're not even going to like make back enough to pay back what you owe. So we got to play more gigs. And then that becomes going to New York where, you know, reality hits home for some of these bands. You know, their significant others kind of jump on board at that point. So Penny Lane doesn't have a place in this world in this home anymore with this group which you can tell she's in, in romantically infatuated with russell they both are but to the point where she's just like oh this is, I, I don't fit in anymore where she's just gonna end it a quaalude overdose uh disaster set to another really great song my cherry more by stevie wonder oh just just really really good stuff here but you can kind of see as the film kind of gets to its conclusion that I don't know if this is a glamorous lifestyle that you would want any part of. I mean, it's almost it's almost a nightmare to be granted. Uh, you count your count your cash later, and what what kind of a nightmare is that? But the toll it would take on your body, your mind, mentally, physically. I don't know if it's worth it. I noticed something today that I hadn't noticed before when Williams watching Penny Lane's stomach be pumped after she's had the quaalude overload, and I guess puking in the bathtub. Oh God. Do you notice that wry smile that tickles his mouth? <laughs> I Not did. To be fun- I know I did. Yeah. Okay. So to be funny in the podcast, but then also to really acknowledge that. Do you think it's him acknowledging? I saved her. Or I'm glad I'm getting the hell out of this. And maybe I got her out of this too. Yeah. All that. I think so. It's not this is funny. 
it's not that. I think that's when my journey has kind of completed with what rock has offered me mm-hmm. through Stillwater. Yep. And I'm kind of grown up now. Like it's, if you and I were to sit back and watch a couple of third graders on the playground bicker over the kickball, we would probably have a few luck, you know, shucks and laugh and say how silly and immature and wouldn't wish anything bad for them. But in the moment, those two that are fighting over it, those two third graders are in the middle of hell. Yeah. It's almost like he's ascended to a position. I don't want to save superior because that sort of sounds snobby, mm-hmm. but maturity that no one else around him has. And him smiling like, oh my God, this is such bullshit. I'm out of here. And this is a guy that essentially had to force him to lose his virginity. <laughs> it's a great moment. Yeah. And subtle. Yeah, I think he he's got he's got a foot in both worlds, and I think he's smart enough. And maybe this is the real Cameron Crow too, that he knows when to get out. Maybe he should have got out, bef- um, or maybe not before we bought a zoo. There was a great moment. Um, so it was when Kimmel was hosting the the Oscars, and you know he's got that ongoing thing with Matt Damon. That's for pure just giggles. So throughout the Oscar tell, this might have been the spotlight uh, La La Land year where they announced the wrong winner. Oh yeah! And uh, throughout the night, they were they had an actor who was talking about an actor. It'd be like someone talking about Tom Hanks, like man, his performance in Philadelphia is just amazing. And then they did another one, and it was like another well-regarded film and actor, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Fallon or not Fallon, uh, Kimmel, Jimmy Kimmel uh, goes up and goes, "We bought a zoo." Now, this is a movie that just makes you question why you even make movies. And he's just like, Matt Damon is just so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, he's totally right. This is like, and and it hurt, that hurt me even more because I'm like, I know who made that movie. And it's, I know he's made better and I know he can make better. I don't know what it is. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, we had the come to Jesus moment with Brian De Palma being like, man, maybe this guy's a better filmmaker than he does get credit for. And he just kind of ran out of steam too. I feel the same way about Cameron Crowe. I know this is a guy that has the power to make good, good movies and he just hasn't, he hasn't executed on that recently. This is going to sound, there are a lot of people just like, man, this rice, I'm not listening to this anymore. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson is dangerously close into getting in that territory too. I'm not uh, going to argue with Whether you. it's Inherent Vice or the Master. Just, yeah, some of those ones that I'm just like, I don't love, but I love Boogie Nights. I love There Will Be Blood. I love Magnolia. Yep. I know they have it in them yep. to make great stuff i i don't know who's gonna is. argue with that i don't know you think there's people out there with like oh inherent vice is great not that one i know a lot of people that like the master oh. that, that that one doesn't fit me i know some people that liked phantom thread but that one didn't really do it for me either so i don't know what the answer is no i think that's a great comparison that you just brought up mm-hmm. i wonder if there's a way for cameron crow back yeah hey if Shyamalan has a way back. Any of these guys can get back. Yeah, you just stole my thunder there, buddy. Um, <laughs> right. If that guy can get back, because as bad as Cameron Crowe's films might be, he has never made The Happening. Or The Last Airbender. Okay, never. Yeah. We Bought a Zoo sucks. Mm-hmm. It can't even start the suck meter of Happening <laughs> or Last Airbender. So yeah, there's, yeah, you got a chance. Does it need to be through some venue that revolves around music or does he need to go a different way? I think you just got to get back to basics. I mean, tell a story that uh, feels real with characters that feel real. I mean, a man who buys it and just sets up this wildlife zoo preserve or whatever, whatever. That's just not as interesting either as the world of rock music or the world of a snapshot into like a high school, so to speak, or a sports agent in Jerry Maguire. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. But I want to see it. I'll tell you this. I want to see it, and I'll I'll be in line to watch his next movie. 
both those guys. <laughs> yeah, I hope so that it comes theatrically. It's documentaries are fine. Like the Pearl Gem documentary is really well done. Mm-hmm. If you like Pearl Gem. Yeah. We got to get back to some cinematic feature. And I, I, it's in there. Maybe a break would be a chance to recharge the batteries a little bit. If He's got to find himself again. If he did a hard biopic. That could be rife with lots of if he was allowed <laughs> conflict, but could be exercise, kind of exercise your demons. I like that. Okay, that right. Cameron Crowe, reach out to us. We'll help you write it. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. So this all kind of comes to a head, and then we just reach a fever pitch in the film where William's like, "I'm done. I'm done here," and it's the moment on the plane. It's the Leonard Skinner plane moment. I'm gonna kill you. I quit. That groupie. A band-aid. All she did was love your band. And you all used her. All of you. You used her and threw her away. She almost died last night while you were with Bob Dylan. You guys are always talking about the fans, the fans, the fans. She was your biggest fan. And you threw her away. And if you can't see that, that's your biggest problem. And I love her. I love her. In some ways, the thing that you want and never want to hear your captain of the pilot, uh, captain of the plane, say is that. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of a funny moment. We're alive. We made it, but not after everyone bore all sins all of sins. everything. I slept with her while you guys were on a break, and you were with Penny Lane and this and that. And Jimmy Fallon's like, I hit a pedestrian. <laughs> yeah, and I think about him every day. It was a hit and run. <laughs> and then, yeah, the 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 drummer. Uh, it's just like, well, I'm gay. I'm just going to say it right now. And then it's just, it's funny. It's just this dead silence. And then we get that moment and we're like, we're going to be okay. And he's like, oh gosh, why did I say that? <laughs> but you kind of see, this is kind of a, it could be a fracturing point for the band, but it's kind of not. They're going to move on. They're going to rely on Doris to finish out their tour and do it the way that they wanted to. But it's the end of the road for William. He's done. Done. And then uh, uh, Russell tells him, Billy Crudup, write what you want, anything. And so he does that, and he goes to Rolling Stone. They're like, oh, my God, you're 15 years old. And then he writes the article like, man, this is really – Rain Wilson is also in this movie. Uh, And he writes this great thing. They love it, and then they go to authenticate it, and they're like 90% of it's fabricated. And so they kind of stab him in the back a bit, the band, Russell. And at that point, it's all over. Yeah, go back to my normal life. Doesn't have his gig at Cream. Doesn't have his gig at Rolling Stone. Yeah, he they, still has his friendship it, with, it, with Ro- Lester Bangs. Le- Rolling Stone thinks I'm a joke. <laughs> the band that I admired hates my guts. They just sold me up the river. And you get a really great moment, huh? Mm-hmm. When he calls Lester Bangs to just sort of say, man, it's all gone to hell. And they have this very, I think, the most profound exchange in the entire film, which is what it means to be uncool in a world that's based around cool. Yeah. And that bit where Philip Seymour Hoffman says, all of the great art in the world is about what we're talking about here. 
girls will always be a problem for guys like us. Good looking people. They have no spine. And there's a lot there. This is, this is such a profound moment. I'm going to, I'll share something. And we're going to talk about this individual a lot next week. Uh, I have this distinct moment in band of, um, please you know band has a stigma. You know, band kids aren't the coolest, as you just said. Like, we live in a world of cool and we have to provide a certain image, dress a certain way, present yourself a certain way. And, you know, yeah, band, you're kind of, yeah, teetering towards the bottom of the the social ladder there, but a great group of people. Yeah. They're still my best friends. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget when he said, and cause oh, this had come up and like, we weren't kind of like, it was one of those days where we didn't give a shit. And he says, he like, he, he said, no one so he's like, when you guys go on and I hope you do go on to college is what he said. No one's going to care who the homecoming queen was. No one's going to care who the star quarterback was or this and that, like, or who the most popular, like they literally don't care. And, it was an eye-opening moment for me. For me, and I was just like, yeah, just, "Just go and have your fun. Do what you want to do." And Matt, I swear to God, when I got to college, and I was like, "College is essentially a little city within itself, and you know nobody other than your friends. If you're lucky enough to go with some friends, no one cares who where, who you are or where you came from. Like it's literally college is literally could be a starting a just starting from scratch again." Shake the etch a sketch clean. It was such a profound moment, and I was just like, "Yeah, who?" It was. It was. I. I don't care anymore. Moment, which was nice. It allowed you to go just be be yourself. That's kind of what Lester's telling him. God, I cannot wait for next week. Oh, There's yes. going to be. You are going to have such a therapeutic session next week on here. <laughs> I cannot wait. Yes. Good and bad. Good and bad. Yeah. Well, I think you just acknowledged the good right there. There was a lot of good. Yeah. Good for that mm-hmm. individual. Mm-hmm. And what great advice. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't hear that today. You know what I mean? Who's telling them that? Are parents like telling the kids that? I don't know if they are. You know what I mean? I think you just did, my friend. All right. <laughs> you just told a whole lot of people. All right. Excellent. <laughs> but, you know, Russell feels uh, a certain set of sting with what, how he's done William wrong. And mm-hmm. he calls Penny because he's still thinking about her. And Penny's back home in San Diego and looks to be in pretty good shape and she's like i want to see you i want to come out to you and she's like okay here go here and she gives him william's address if you want to fix the stuff with me you have to fix this first so he's just like deer in the headlights in this house and meets francis who gave him a a, just like a ripping earlier in the film that we didn't discuss this phone call where she essentially just sends him straight saying i know there's a good person in you russell like if you if you could really find it like really like trying to psychoanalyze him as best as she can and that, that's a pretty that's a pretty good moment but russell's willing to play ball now at this point like i'm sorry i called rolling stone i told him it was true i don't know what they're going to do with it but i'm going to give you what you've needed this entire movie that i have not been able to to offer and that's an interview for what purpose mm-hmm. The story's written. Mm-hmm. He knows the band now. He doesn't need any more of that from Russell. Yeah. I think he knows how Russell ticks. And I got to argue, it's talent, but it's a lot of ego. But it goes back to what William's home is. Inside his <clears throat> his home is rock. Yeah. That's where he feels comfortable. That's his sanctuary. And we get a really nice moment where Russell is finally not acting like such a jackass. Yeah. Or as he calls himself, a, I guess BB calls himself a dick, but... Acting like a golden god. And what a perfect way to fade out. Movie end. Done. 
with some more Cameron Crowe like edits. No, I think it's a it's a perfect ending. With the best Beatles, I'm sorry, the best um, Beach Boy song that nobody's ever heard. Mm-hmm. Feel flows. Excellent. So that's almost famous. Uh, oh, and then there's just one other element. Penny Lane's finally going to Morocco. Yeah, her foot out the door is. I want to go start anew over there. At the end of the film, she's finally going to do that. So everyone kind of goes through a series of growth in this film, which is another reason why I like it. In a coming of age, fish out of water, hero's journey, there has to be growth in in order for there to be satisfaction at the end of the day. So Mm -hmm. I think this film gives that to us. Matt, uh, what is your favorite tasting note of Almost Famous? Which is interesting. You said this was a film that you didn't like on initial viewing and as I mentioned earlier, this is something I saw in your class and through repeated viewing, you're watching it once a year, multiple times, probably yeah. it's really grown on you. So, um, there was a lot of buzz around it when it came out. I liked it. I just didn't see, um, I, I didn't see what everybody else did. Well, let's talk about, so it was, I, I thought this was interesting. $60 million budget. That's pretty expensive for a film like this. Sure it only is. made 48 million. So it didn't even quite break even on that regard that's after all the golden globe nomination stuff and like probably his most critic well him or jerry Maguire. well like, he won f- four oscar nominations and he won for best original screenplay for this so <laughs> it's, and this is not a bad film so okay yeah that, it's grown on me and maybe that's just becoming more familiar with it and understanding it and appreciating it more i'm not sure did you ask me tasting note Would yeah, you ask me? your favorite tasting note your favorite scene um I think for me, it's that conversation between Lester Bangs and William after mm-hmm. he's basically lost his job at Rolling Stone. Lester Bangs has mentored him and cares about him. And the two of them did share a great friendship in real life. And I think that there's a lot of truth in what they said, not only for what they're saying, but the conversation that they probably had. Yeah. Um. And it's weird with a movie that's filled with some rather spectacular moments. It's that really kind of well, quaint quieter and moments, subtle yeah. mm, sure. conversation. I think that's what I'm going to go with. I already mentioned mine and I played yeah. this and it's the tiny dancer moment. It's when I hear tiny dancer now, I think of that scene. Oh, so yeah. that's, it's, it's changed for me, like how that's uh, perceived to me, but what it's just such a high moment. I think it's at the hour mark. It's like at the halfway point in the movie when that hits, um, uh, it's it, it's 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 the standout one for me. It always has been. It's almost you want to join them and sing along. You know what I mean? Like you want to be part of the group. Yeah, so yeah. What's the? Oh my god! I was thinking that. Uh, you know, you know, kind of coming up in like the casts that we're going to do and some of the newish releases that we're going to talk about. Uh, that's a tease. But we got we to gotta do another cask of terrible movies again. Okay. Just for fun. Uh, we'll pull Troll 2 in there, but another one. And I just saw a video on it that we have to watch. Just because I don't know like, it, what, like what we'll think. Just We'll just be laughing the whole time. We got to do Speed 2 Cruise Control. Okay. Um, Jason Patrick. And right? Willem Dafoe, yeah. But uh, Matt, what is your oh my God moment from Almost Famous? I'll go first, actually. Um, it's the stomach pumping scene. Like, that's something that I've always, like, heard about. Like, oh, you got to go get your stomach pumped or whatnot. And I've never seen it before. Oh, it looks terrible. <laughs> it looks absolutely terrible. That's mine, too. And yeah. it's a pretty easy cinematic trick to pull the stuffing of the tube down her throat because you just do it behind her. And it's like the magician <clears throat> trick, right? Sure, yeah. Sleight of hand. But that's how they really did it. Ugh. 
how do you swallow a tube? I don't know. When you're barely coherent anyway. Because mm-hmm. she's on the verge of slipping into unconsciousness because she's overdosing from quaaludes. Yep. Boy, that's a tough gig. Yep. Yeah, that's mine too. Oof. But then, like I said, scored to a great Stevie Wonder song, who's one of my favorite uh, uh, musicians of all time. We've talked, I think, a little bit about Cameron Crowe as a writer and visionary, but I want to say something right now. Okay. In this scene, I think you do see the way he's really capable and good at framing what needs to happen. If you choose that My Sharia More by Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. and then show Penny Lane's struggle through the the flexing of her feet, because we've all been there, mm-hmm. like when something hurts you and you just curl up and your, your, your limbs contort and you just kind of pull everything in. Yeah. You don't need to see anything more than that. You know what's going on. And then I'm going to finish that off with what we talked about earlier. The right smile. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good directorial stuff there, Jesse. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's yep. he's got it there. So, yes, that's mine too. Excellent. Who's the master distiller on Almost Famous? Yeah. I Cam- mean, Cameron Crowe. It, well, <laughs> yeah. You don't have anywhere else to go, do you? Yeah. I think Billy Crudup is pretty good in this film, but is it's Billy, Cameron Crowe. Is Billy Crudup a little... Uh, I know where you're going. A little Claude Rains. <laughs> yeah, but do you know why? Huh. Billy Crudup had a pretty big issue with some domestic stuff. Oh, really? That derailed his career pretty much from about this time until he came back in Watchmen as Dr. Really? Manhattan. Okay. I, You know, I don't want to besmirch anybody too much on the podcast, right? That never happens. But yeah, I like Billy Crudup, but I mean, there's some pretty heavy domestic shit that he Shoot, went through that yeah. made him not be such a likable guy. Because he's good when he's on screen. Really good. Yeah. No, I, I knew Dr. Manhattan. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then gone for, I mean, he did some stuff, but nobody saw it. And unfortunately for him, I think he missed that window where he was 10 years of really good looking guy that was going to be, could have been, could have been, yeah, could have been that thing. Yep. No, yes, you're absolutely right. Crazy. Yep. Yeah. I got to go Cameron Crowe as well. I mean, I think maybe you picked, uh, maybe you picked him on uh, Fast Times for his screenplay because it just, he peppers his stories with people that feel real because they exist because they really did exist. I mean, these are real people he's writing about from real experiences. And like I said, we've decided that this is the hero Campbell's hero's journey just done differently through the world of music. It's a fish out of water story. It's yeah. a coming of age drama uh, set in the world of 70s rock music. I mean, what more do you want? Nothing. Yeah, What more do you want? Sama Hayek. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, but yeah, no, right. It's yeah, all why there. not? Yeah, what more do you want in this in the in a story like this for it to to really work? Like, because I mean, I want to watch that. I like all those things. Yeah. How are you going to rate and grade? Almost famous. We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Call plus. Um, I appreciate his story, and I love that he brings it to life on screen. And I've seen this movie a lot. I mean, a lot, way over a hundred times. Yeah, three plus times a year. For 20 years. Yeah, there you go. And then whatever I saw it on my own, at least two times in the theater and now with you. Yeah. That's at least 122. Um, There are some moments in the film for me that drag a little bit. Mm -hmm. That just, can we get onto it? Because I want this other part to come because the scene's boring. Yeah. Um, So yeah, call plus. It was funny, but like after after I took your class and we got acquainted and we started writing and doing the conference gig and whatnot and just kind of just talking about film and whatnot, it was always surprising to me to kind of see like the, the the films that like that you really really liked and the ones you're like, 
like, man, like I, I like the searchers, but I can't do that movie anymore. I've seen it too much. Like I like, you're just get oversaturated with something. And I think that's dangerous in film sometimes. Oh yeah. Like, uh, I just did a viewing of the Lord of the Rings trilogy this year. I need another five years. Like I like to give it a distance because when I come back to it, it's almost like I come back to it new. And it's like that experience in itself is amazing. Like the, you're almost rediscovering it again. And, but if you're watching it once a month or once a year, twice a year, yeah. uh, you kind of get, you kind of get used to it a little bit. It kind of, it doesn't take the sting out of it, but there's something to coming back to something that I haven't watched this in about seven years. So this was a great viewing for me. I, I had a great time watching it. Uh, single barrel plus for me. This one's on the cusp. I think this is my favorite Cameron Crowe movie that he's, he's ever made. Um, I love the world. I like this era of music. I like the journey he takes well acted. Um, it's just fun. It's just got a lot of really memorable moments and it's just a shame. I, I it didn't see it until I saw it, but I'm glad I finally did see it. There's a couple of things that happened after this film that I always thought were pretty interesting. What Jason Lee became. Mm -hmm. And I know he's got a weird Scientology thing that he's kind of working <laughs> through that makes him tough to handle. And it's, but, you know, I mean, Scientologist, man, my, what's it? Um, Earl, right. My, my name, my is, name Earl. is Earl. Yeah. That was a good show, but <sighs> I thought Jason Lee was going to be a lot more than this. Oh, sure. Yeah. It, he didn't have a bad career. Mm -hmm. And then like the Billy Crudup thing to me, um, is an interesting story. The Patrick Fujit thing is an interesting story to me. Kate Hudson, all of these people, I think at the time and Cameron Crowe too, to a certain extent, I don't want to say we're almost famous because this was a huge movie, mm -hmm. but the title sort of fits in some ways. Yeah. Kate Hudson's oh, wait, wait. a very noticeable name in Hollywood today, sure. but is it for Hollywood now or is it for apparel? Yeah, it's probably that. I think it is too. Mm -hmm. And at 41 and not the cute, the kind of good looking gal, whatever. I mean, time's rough on women in Hollywood and that's bullshit, but mm -hmm. it is. She still looks good <laughs> for them. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I, I don't care, but I think that's unfair, but it, it happens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Billy Crudup, you can find him in stuff, but he doesn't headline anything. And man, he was on the cusp of headlining. I think Billy Crudup is going to be coming up on something that we are interested in discussing, and that is Zack Snyder's Justice League. He oh my was, gosh. He was cast as Barry Allen's father in prison, and those were scenes that got cut from the theatrical version. And I think they're coming back. There is. This is, <laughs> this is off the subject here. Okay. We have to at some point soon, mm. probably around post Wonder Woman 84, cover all of the huge news this week with DCEU, Warner Brothers, and HBO Max. Because yeah. the entire film industry got a big kick in the balls this week. It was on pins and needles. <laughs> and all it takes is Disney Plus saying, let's do the same thing with Black Widow and its curtains. Yeah, I know. So yeah, we'll come back to that. For those of you that don't know, and maybe we can just post a link from The Hollywood Reporter on, yeah, the, sure. on the social so they can read it. Yeah. Huge announcement this week from Warner Brothers to their entire slate of 2021 is going to VOD as it's released, where it's released theatrically, if available, for free for a month. And there's a lot of economics we got to talk around this. Monetizing that, what does that mean going forward? And I've already said like five times on this podcast how great HBO Max already is. Right. You're, you're going to make it better? Right, right. <laughs> Because if that thing dominates the market the way that I think it's going to, not only because there's so lack of new material for a lot of people in a lot of states to see, ours being one, yeah. everyone's going to go there. And then to remain competitive, others are going to have to go the same route. And 
It's a it's just a domino effect. There is literally a movement among theaters to boycott Warner Brothers films in 2021 right now yeah. because they are not going to be just solely their property in theater. But that's that's a whole shot. Yeah, we got we got to talk about that because there's a lot to break down. But I think it's the we'll post break, it. break down the fact that it like. I'm going to be watching them when they come out. You know what I Damn mean? Damn right. But I want to go to the theater too. I mean, it's Damn a, right. I'm in a weird psychological place with this whole thing, but we'll, we'll yeah, well, that's a great shot. We'll do that. We need to do that. A uh, couple comes, we have a couple coming up, I think yeah. that are well, we got, we got important. Big shit coming up here. Yeah. I just want to say, <laughs> I love, I love Kate Hudson. Uh, cause she's a Denver Broncos fan. So we'd have that to talk about. <laughs> Show's over guys. I'm out by. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. I say softly. There you go. Jesse. Sing dead. along in the car. Yep. All righty. So we have to do this because we didn't mention it and I'm, I'm shocked. Someone's going to do it this week. So let's do it now. Go ahead. During the shooting of this, Kate Hudson did have experience with big time rockers. Mm-hmm. Married to Chris Robinson of the Black Crows. Yeah. No longer a thing. But again, to the self-referential nature of this film, there it is in another place. I We, we didn't mention that at oh, all. I, how did that? But yes, that is something that we need to at least acknowledge. And we didn't, at least knew about that going in. Sorry if we didn't get to it. Excellent. It helps. Certainly helped probably her as Penny Lane. Sure. She knows what the rock world looks like. Had a, had a foot in that. All right. Excellent. So this is a somewhat biopic of Cameron Crowe and of a few bands, Leonard Skinner, the Eagles, Greg Allman, Allman Brothers. So my nightcap question to you, Matt, is what's the top three biopics you'd like to see that haven't been done yet. So I'm hoping in this that we can do stuff that isn't maybe already documentary and move to like sure. theatrical. Oh, is that yeah. fine? Yeah. Can I have that? Okay. So then if that's the case, checking in number three for me is the Guns N' Roses story. Uh, the guy that wrote Hammer of the Gods, the book that you look so much about, Zeppelin, oh, Stephen Davis, Davis, yeah, did the same treatment for Guns N' Roses in a book called Watch You Bleed. Which, if you like reading those kind of stories, I'll have to find my copy and let you check it out. Yeah. That is the most debaucherous thing I've ever read. <laughs> but for all of the things that Guns N' Roses was, and certainly this is going to play because it's going to be bands and musicians that I like. Yeah. I don't want to see a movie about a band. I'd like, I don't oh, want to yeah. see Queen. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, they already made that. <laughs> oh, they did? Yeah. I missed that one too. <laughs> Just kidding. Sort of. Guns N' Roses was successful and broken for the manic nature of Axel. And everyone's like, well, of course they are, Matt. But you all need to really delve into what he was. The line in Welcome to the Jungle is literally what happened when he got dropped off in the wrong part of town in L.A. And some guy on the street corner shouted that at him. And I believe it was Izzy on the way to a drug deal. You're in the jungle, baby. Mm. You're going to die. Oh, wow. Because they ran out of money and had to hop a fence to try to get to where they were going and showed up in wherever the hell it was, look out. And that's the most G-rated part of that entire story. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, my gosh. It's such a good story. Have you ever read uh, Stephen Davis also did Gold Dust Woman? Stephen Nicks, have you read that one? No, I've read a lot of Fleetwood Mac stuff. I haven't read hers particularly. I bet that one's pretty good. I bet it is, too. Yeah. That guy's our good writer. Yeah. 
So that's my number three is the GNR story. Excellent. I'm taking another Stephen Davis one. So I got a crazy story on how I read this. So I was taking this college, finding my own identity. And I'm sitting next to this kid that I had known for years. And and, and we, he's like my closest friend that I have in this class. And we're in the back of class and, and it's the lecture thing. And I asked you, I was like, Matt, were you a copious note taker? And you're like, yeah, I was. And I was like, I kind of wasn't. But my friend was reading Hammer of the Gods, the Led Zeppelin. I'm like, I'm like, what are you reading there? And he's like, dude, this this book is great. And he let me borrow it. And I, I burned through that thing and I was like, oh my God. And ever since then, my number three, I got to see a Led Zeppelin biopic. Just Not make, the song remains the same though. No, I like that too, but that's like a concert movie. Yeah. Um, I, I want the story. Oh, that, check that out. That thing's wild. It starts with Robert Johnson's alleged selling of his soul to the devil for the creation of the rock music gods. Mm. Uh, it goes into all of the guys. The story, I'll just the story with the shark and the orgy is just mm. insane. Put piece that together as you will. Uh, I want to see it. Um, and the thing I can respect the most about Led Zeppelin is, you know, after you have a member die, a, such a prominent member is John Bonham, who you'll he'll be number one on every rock drum list ever, right there with Neil Peart. To both those guys, yeah, R.I.P. Uh, they'll they they had the just initiative to say we're done we're not going to find a replacement we're not going to create any things without him we're just done and they've come back occasionally for some reunion concerts but i gotta respect that because a lot of these bands they they line up changes they limp on and they suffer their legacy suffers not zeppelin man bad day for drummers in the podcast in the last three minutes because yeah. we can include steven adler not to the same level but <laughs> you mentioned a drumming on this podcast today you're probably not alive anymore yeah that's true number two that would be a great one i want to see that movie too it would be wild i don't like zeppelin the way you do but that would be a good watch it'd be crazy okay number two there's already a documentary out about this gentleman but this story and his involves steve winwood and george harrison and fleetwood mac and we can go on and on and on and on and it's success and brilliance and racism and tragedy and it's Eric Clapton. I mean, just his, his kid falling out of the window alone, my God. <laughs> That's like the end of the story. Yeah. You know, the construction of Layla and what that meant and his mm -hmm. relationship and how that played with George Harrison and blind faith and drugs and liquor and genius and cream and Rolling Stone destroying cream. Man, yes, that's the one I want. Well, Clapton figures into Led Zeppelin too because, you know, Paige had a turn in the Yardbirds as well. That's right. So, like, the talent in that group alone was amazing. Isn't it weird that that particular guy has been part of so many super groups that and you can argue cream made it and yeah. like that. I'm not going to say that they didn't eh, three but, albums, but kind of yeah. didn't yeah. Yeah. for what cream should have been. And literally blind faith is this first band that's created to be all-star band. His greatest success is just his solo by himself. Work out by himself all on his lonesome. There's a, for all of you out there, if you want to see his story, I think it's called my life in 12 bars. I think the last time I saw it was on Showtime. It's a really fantastic documentary that celebrates the uh, monumental successes and failures of, for me, a rock god. Number two on the list behind Excellent. Dave Grohl. But um, that's not who I'd pick for number one either. So that's my number two is Eric Clapton. Let's hear your number two. 
So as mentioned earlier in one of the sound clips, it's Mark Bolin, but it's Mark Bolin and the story of T-Rex. Love them, man. That's so weird. Yeah, it's glam rock, and that, I'm telling you right now, that, that shit ain't for everybody. So I took, a, this is just the story of me going to college. I took another class, it was a music class, and we had like a group discussion, and I confessed that I was a fan of T-Rex, and this kid came up to me, and he's like, you're the first normal person I've ever met that actually likes that band. So they're usually a group of weirdos, I imagine, but... Man, Electric Warrior, Banga Gong. I mean, Tarantino's uses their music in so many of his films. But the guy died at 29 in a car accident. Uh, and just talk Was he about, loaded? Uh, no, he wasn't. Uh, but obviously, they lived the lifestyle, but didn't die by it. Um, just died by circumstance. Mm. You, know, you know what I mean? But he he's, to me, a much better version of the glam scene than David Bowie ever was. Mm. And Ooh, yeah. wow. Did, man... We don't like Queen. <laughs> Eagles are overrated. You said that. T-Rex is better than David Bowie. <laughs> I like Shit. the Eagles. Yeah. Man. But uh, but who's heard of T-Rex? You know what I mean? That's the other thing is you'll know some of their songs, but when you take a deep dive, there's some great stuff in there. There's some really good stuff. Um, yeah. I want to tell that story because no one's told it yet. That's a good one. Yeah. But we may have to re- change, like rename our <laughs> podcast. Best of Hot Takes 2020. This is a hot take after hot take this week, isn't it? Whatever. I know. <laughs> Number one, this is going to come as no surprise to you. It's already been brought up today. Yeah. It it has to be for me, Fleetwood Mac. Oh, that'd be great. It has to be. It's yeah. love triangle after drug, after genius, after... It has to be the Fleetwood Mac story. That's it. Um, I'd love it. Again, his book is fantastic. I forget who wrote that, but the Fleetwood, Fleetwood book is amazing. Is it him also? Yes. Okay, I didn't know it was him too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's the movie I want. It's totally personal. I love that band to the most deepest part of my soul, but I want to see it in a movie, and they were a mess. Yeah. But, man, it produced some really good art. Mine's going to be so on the nose, too. Jesse, Go Your Own Way (laughs) is the greatest lover telling other lover fuck off that has ever been scripted. It's good. Maybe Alanis Morissette might be in there. Maybe. But... That is just Lindsay literally on stage telling Stevie, pound sand, woman. Yeah. Oh, God. That's great. To be a fly on the wall in some of those back uh, backstage rooms would just be like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Oh, and her response back to him is Silver Spring. But anyway, we like, but that, that's right. That's the movie. Yeah. Oh, it would God. just be like, and then there's just Mick Fleetwood like, what have I done? <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm just drumming back here. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank God the rhythm section's in. Tacked in this band, otherwise there wouldn't be anything. Yep. John, take it away. My Jesse, num- take it away. Yeah, my number one is so on the nose too, but, and I don't want Across the Universe, and I don't want Nowhere Boy. I want a from 1956 to 1970. I already know what I want it to look like. I want the Beatles. I want a biopic on their years, the rise of the British scene, uh, the, you know, the, the coming over, the Ed Sullivan experimenting with Ravi Shankar and then like kind of like really kind of parting ways and for a band that you know is responsible for literally every band we've mentioned today uh I want to see that and uh, the rights part is the hard part because you got to collaborate with so many different family members but if they could come together to tell the story uh man I want a Godfather part two length of film. I want it to be four and a half hours. I like, I just want to, I want to see that story. Okay. Who directs it then? Me. <laughs> no way. Spielberg. Uh, no, no. Um, 
Yeah, that ain't Nolan. That ain't Cameron Crowe. That ain't. Are you sure it's not Cameron Crowe? It's not Cameron. Cameron Crowe at his best couldn't handle this? I don't know. Maybe. But Paul Thomas Anderson would be pretty good at making that movie. I guess it would depend exactly what part of it you wanted to do. Would you want to do the more personal or the music piece that might come into it? But yeah, I want it all. <laughs> I want a hodgepodge. Yeah. Casting them is key, though. And I've thought about this a long time. I've had these conversations. There's a lot of people that I've thought about, like who who could like come across. Like I want Michael Fassbender to play George Martin, the producer. I want Christian Bell to play Brian Epstein. Like, just like you know, some really heavy talent in there. Because you know who I want to do the Fleetwood Mac. This is going to shock you. Okay, I want it to be Mark Webb. Ooh, yeah. Where's he? Spider Man ruined that man. Well, then he did that Kate Beckinsale film with that um, mm. that nobody saw. And I don't know where Mark Webb is now these days. Mark Webb, the director of 500 Days of Summer. That's perfect. Sign us up. Yeah, we'll write it. Yeah, we'll write those. We're free. Are you busy this weekend? I'll go talk to Yoko. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, that's Almost Famous from 2000. You know, you know, go, go check it out. It's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. There's the bootleg version we couldn't watch today, but it, it's like 40 minutes longer. It uh, adds some definite padding to, to, uh, padding to the film. But, Matt, we've reached a momentous occasion. We'll set this up, and then we'll let next week just do its thing. So next week is episode number 100 of Rice Mile Films. Stop for a minute. Yeah. 100 episodes. That's proper. That's With not the counting. shots, it's over. But what right proper, Saturday morning right proper. 100. Saturday morning right proper. Yeah, 100. I can't believe it. Dude. Yeah. Never would have thought it. Yeah. Aquaman was a long time ago. Yeah, and you guys didn't even, maybe we should release Aquaman as just like a fun thing. What I'd like to do yeah. is once we get back to film and the influx of it, yeah. we need to start thinking about a Patreon deal. Yeah. We do. And we'll release that. Yep. For sure. Yeah, I think we got we got the the listeners who'd be willing to kind of jump into that and that that'd be that'd be a lot of fun. One hundred episodes and that is you and I talking, which we did all the time, but mm-hmm. sustainability because people have given us feedback and tuned in and made it worth our while. Yeah, we're gonna do that. We'll dabble in we'll start doing some merge stickers. I stick people like stickers. Like decals to like put on like cars and like laptops and shit. We'll, we'll come up with some of that and some t-shirts. Like we're, we're Matt and I's goal was always just like, let's just build an audience. Let's just like keep building. Let's get acquainted. Let's figure out this. The sound has definitely helped, but we've reached number 100 and we're going to cover a film. And I think it's the most talked about film we've ever mentioned on this podcast without doing it. it so exactly. <laughs> you want to go ahead and set it up. Yeah. Coming up from 2014, Damien Chazelle's directorial debut whiplash i'm so excited it's just gonna be so much fun there's your beatles director right there yeah that'd be hey there you go i didn't even think about him yeah yeah that's who i want good i can't wait to talk about him but the cast the story my personal life (laughs) oh yeah everybody buckle up next week because it is going to be a mirror into jesse's inner machinations there's going to be a lot of truth like i think i started to cry on the rocky episode into my soul Jesse's going to bear all sins. Dark night of my soul. Next week's loaded. But it's a great film. And if you haven't seen it yet, um, you need to to check it out. Um, There's going to be a lot of praise thrown. The the audio clips are going to be off the charts, uh, as as I'll say. We might have more than our typical seven or eight that we usually run. But it's going to be a wild ride for number 100. Look, for those people that you know, know the show. um, We've talked about that a lot. So the cat's out of the bag. This is going to be top shelf for both of us. And I'm going to defend it in a way that this might be top five of all time. We'll see if we can get there. Sounds good. I can't wait to do this movie. It's going to be good. And then we're going to roll out a shot in the coming weeks. It's a Rye retrospective. Looking back at the 
last 100. That's going to be fun, too. I've already told Matt, I was like, think of the best rants you have. And I instantly thought, I was like, man, I went on one on Terminator Dark Fate. That was nothing short of legendary. So good. We'll have to replay that one. We have some exciting casts coming up. We've got one to finish up the year that'll be time appropriate. And then I think we have a good idea about what we're going to do with the way film looks in 2021 that I think is going to be a chance to do some contemporary stuff. And for all those out there, we are going to cover Wonder Woman 84. So we will hit that. Yeah. So we're going to give you guys a chance to see it. Excellent. 99 in the bag, brother. One more to go. One more. Here's to you. Cheers to you. Cheers Cheers to you. Cheers to that. I got to get going because I'm going to go jump on on the bus and I'm going to go tour with the the Foo Fighters because that's who it would be today for me. (laughs) Bastard. That's my band. You can come. You can come too. Is room on that bus? Yeah. For two of us. Yep. Well, I have to tell you, I looked at my birth certificate and I need to go back and look at it because I think I'm 11. <laughs> I forgot that was a thing in this movie too. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you every, very much, everyone, for listening each and every week. We got, we're got we going to have a real special episode for you next week. Uh, and until then, we'll see you then. Yeah, everybody, let's kill it next week. 100. Here we go, everybody. Have a fantastic week. Thank you so much. And we will see you in the light 100 next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to leave us a comment or some feedback, hit us up on the social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. Almost Famous is property of Columbia Pictures, DreamWorks Pictures, Vinyl Films, and Sony Pictures Releasing, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. So, Russell, what do you love about music? To begin with, everything. <laughs>